and have a seat. Good morning. My name is Buck Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I work in the, the area of our leadership development. We'll also work with our operations team. It's my privilege to be with you this morning. I'm subbing in for Brian. We're going to continue our time in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the last section of Ephesians 4. Uh, in prepping today, I was um, thrilled to see a passage that I had not seen in a long time, even in my business, that happens. It's a rather dramatic passage. It's inspirational and it's a bit sobering. And it's found in Acts chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it is Paul's final words to the Ephesian elders. Paul has spent a great deal of time with the Ephesians, had lived with and among them for three years. He had been with the Corinthians for 18 months. And at the end of his third missionary journey, he wants to make it back to Jerusalem, but he wants to talk to the Ephesian elders one more time. And what he says, again, is inspirational, but it's also a prophecy that's always caught my attention. It's rather dramatic. And if there are electives in heaven, this is a a class I would like to sign up for. I would like to transport back and see this scene that's going to unfold in Acts chapter 20. Now, I was a Bible college prof for 16 years, so I got charts and maps and just pray for me, okay, because we're going to, we're going to go through this. The idea of Paul is a little different than we would think. We, we, he does a lot of stuff on the road and on sea and all these areas in which you're familiar with, all found in your background of the book of Acts. Book of Acts is a crucial document before you read Pauline literature. It helps you see what's going on. And so when we, we see a letter like Ephesus, we can see the backdrop of his relationship with them. And he's going to be in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, he's going to say. He wants to get there for the time of Pentecost. And so he's going to bypass Ephesus, the hometown of the Ephesians, obviously, and go to this city called Miletus. And if you want to pick it up in your Bible, it's in Acts 20. If not, I've got it on the overhead. But it it sort of starts off typically, frankly, so hang with it, because the background for Ephesians, the book, is really encapsulated in Acts chapter 20 through the end of the chapter. So Luke writes, sailing from there, we came to Miletus, a city, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying, I love that, for he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He had come, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know that from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility. Remember, he had been with these elders in a church that he had planted with these guys that he had trained for three years. That's important backdrop. I did not shrink during that time of education from teaching you publicly and from house to house. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And now behold, I know that all of you will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, but be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. Watch the mood change. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the job description of an elder, to oversee, to shepherd the church of God, which is so precious to Christ that he purchased it to God, that he purchased it with the blood of his own son. 
Now listen to this. For I know, it's a prophecy. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Here it is. And from among your own selves, men will begin to arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Just don't miss it. Elders that he'd trained, elders that he'd selected for three years, he asked to come about a 10-mile walk to meet him in Miletus. In their final meeting, he says this, from among you guys, all the pronouns and verbs are plural, from y'all, we would say, some of you are going to arise and speak perverse things and undo the work that I and you, in fact, have helped been doing. Draw disciples after them, their false teachings. Know therefore, or therefore rather, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you, notice the aspirational ending, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. The reality of the Christian life, beautiful benediction, commendation like this, and the reality that men and women of faith can struggle. And men and women from among that Ephesian elder board will so struggle that some will begin to speak perverse things. Paul said to the, this in around the year 53 AD, he's going to write the book of Ephesians, our book that we're studying while he's in Roman jail in around 60. And a couple of years later, he's going to write kind of the rest of the story, how this unfolded when he writes to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus in the book of 1 Timothy. And notice at the end of the chapter, he lets us know, well, how did that prophecy ever work out that he gave in Acts chapter 20? Did those savage wolves come in? Did men from among your own selves begin to speak perverse things? He says, the command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you, Timothy, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There is no doubt in my mind that Hymenaeus and Alexander were two of those elders that Paul met at, at, at Miletus. Now we have names. They're real. Among us, it'd be Mike and Eddie, Gary, Carl, men we all know, men that we couldn't imagine being named like this. You know, the scripture is, is, is famous for correcting behavior, which is what's going on in the book of Ephesians. It's also good for preventative. We should shrink back from this and go, whoa, may this never happen to us. And thus be on the alert would be our admonition as well. The metaphor he uses is haunting to me. They have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Just convert the metaphor. Their, their life of faith was at sea. The boat had left the dock. It was at sea. But why do ships wreck through poor navigation, through poor planning, through not heeding the signs by not being careful as to their course? They suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And their discipline was severe. By the, by the way, you don't hand unbelievers over to Satan. They're already in his grip. It's the strongest admonition the Bible can emit when it talks about a Christian. It's the ultimate discipline. And so what we see 
is the background of the book of Ephesians. And now as we study Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, it's come home to roost. The savage wolves had been among them. Hymenaeus and Alexander had done their thing. And Paul writes this book to deal with the after effects of what's happened. The savage wolves had come in and the problems that had ultimately had caused were disunity and disharmony, primarily over racial tension, ethnic, cultural tension, Jew and Gentile. And that's why Ephesians is this great book about the barrier being removed and and a harmony available in Jesus Christ that in any cultural, religious, any personal difference can be harmonized, made whole again through the recognition of the removal of that barrier and the call to unity. So Paul begins to sort of chip away at this problem, racial, ethnic, cultural, religious, interpersonal problems, ultimately over Jew-Gentile distinctions each not understanding one another. And that's what comprises the book of Ephesians. Now, if the Ephesians had got a report card, my report cards used to look like this. They weren't on the internet. They were handed to you and they would have got unsatisfactory in works and plays well with others. Okay. They were just not getting along. Now we enjoy a church that gets along. But the Bible says, don't check out on me now because one day we might be trialed, we might be tempted not to get along. It might come up through uh, powerful men and women teaching different doctrine and, and they, they have a little group that meets over here and, and then his little group meets over here and then his group meets over here and her group meets back there and all of a sudden the grenades start lobbing, innuendo, talk, falsehood, gossip, not working and playing well with others. When Paul writes Ephesians, Seven years after that prophecy that we just saw in Acts chapter 20, it's full bore. And he's dealing with a a disorganized, disunion church. And so he begins to address the problem. How does he do it? He does what what we've been reading. But notice the function of each section of Ephesians as we make our way through. In the first section, he tells you about every spiritual blessing. That famous verse in Ephesians 1.3, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Parallel verse in Second Peter 1, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. He writes a sentence in Greek that lasts from verse 3 to chapter 14 with no commas and no period. It's just this huge run-on sentence because he's so overwhelmed with all the blessings that come from being in Christ. If you're a Bible student, get out a highlighter, color is your choice, and simply highlight the phrase in Christ in the book of Ephesians. You'll get to 27. You can't miss his point that in Christ is where it's at. In Christ is where spiritual blessings reside. In Christ is where harmony will reside. So he comes out shooting theology and then beautifully at the end of the chapter, there's this beautiful prayer. And you'll see that pattern in Ephesians. Heavy theology, pray it in. Heavy theology, pray it in. I love the marriage of those two. Sometimes we can be attracted to one or the other. You know, I'm a, I was a Hebrew major. I'm a, a theologian. I've got all this stuff and over here. Oh, I just pray. Let's be men and women who do both because the necessity to have spiritual enlightenment of the theology that God presents is just as crucial 
as one who prays without theology. We want to bring those two together. And so in, in the prayer, he's saying those blessings are yours and you can be rich spiritually, if you will, in Christ. And then in my favorite section in Ephesians, the little pericope from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the gamut of life is, is stated in these 10 or 11 verses. From, from an unbeliever, you were dead in trespasses and sins, 2-1. The great interruption, but God being rich in mercy. The famous, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. And then the beautiful verse 10 that we often forget, that we are his workmanship. Greek word poema there, we get our word poem from it. He's crafting us into something that's pleasing to him. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which is the point of our passage today, that obedience and good works is part of the Christian life. Commands from God are expected to be obeyed, and that helps sanctify us. That makes us holy like the Lord wants us to be. So he gives that great principle, and then he says we have a common heritage in being outside of Christ and now inside of Christ, but why are we fighting? Because we're not reconciled. And that's the famous verse that says the barrier wall has been torn down. There's no more separation between Jew and Gentile. The wall is down. Come, enjoy one another. Be reconciled around Christ and then also enjoy the reconciliation that is yours. Because now you are one, he says in chapter 3. And he prays it in at the end of chapter 3. You're not only one, but be spiritually strengthened through really this beautiful, oft-overlooked passage at the end of chapter 3. Go back and study that personally. And then the book moves to application. First three chapters, kind of heavy doctrine. Then there's this famous therefore in chapter 4, verse, verse 1. Therefore, walk worthy of the manner in which you were called. Paul uses the word walk to describe just activity. Live in accord with your calling. Become who you are. Live out your behavior through your faith, through your belief. Understand your identity in Christ and live accordingly. So live as one. And last week, Brian taught taught us that, that that renewal is this idea of laying aside the old man and putting on the new, but particularly focused on the mind. Be renewed in our minds, very similar to what Paul does in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take on the mind of Christ in our section today. I'm not only renewed with this new set of clothing that mentally allows me to understand the things of the Spirit, But Paul's basically saying, let's take that baby out for a spin now. And he's going to issue the heaviest section of commands thus far in the book of Ephesians. Six negative commands, six positive commands, and six reasons for doing so. Okay? We'll get to that, but be ready for that because that's all Paul is doing. In essence, Ephesians, certainly our section today, is about this big fancy word called sanctification. Okay? It's just from the normal word for holy, which is a a bit... Have you ever used the word sanctification or holy outside of church? Okay. Those are terms that we don't use out in the street. Let's, Let's take them apart to make sure we understand what they mean. They both come from the same word. To be sanctified, to be holy is the same thing. We use it all the time. The Holy Spirit is a distinct and special spirit. If something big happens, we may go, holy cow, holy mackerel. If, uh, if, if, if you ever read 1 Corinthians, they're called saints. As, as, as every letter that Paul begins are written to saints, they're separate, they're distinct. 
They're special. We're in a sanctuary, same word. We're to be sanctified or to have sanctity or sanctions might be placed against us. We've been set apart. The idea of a holiday or holy day comes from these same words. Things that are special or distinct. That word has the conceptual understanding of being and living uncommonly. Of being and living specially. Of being and living apart from the normal things of the flesh, the normal things of the old man, and begin to put on the things that the new man wears, that the new woman wears, and be distinct and special in that distinction. All these are just synonyms. It does not, however, mean sinless. There is no hope of Christians outside of death or rapture living a sinless life. So the pressure is off just for a moment. That's not our goal. Certainly moral excellence is our calling But we can never achieve a state of sinlessness. Our bodies in their current state demand that that be the truth. We are yet awaiting that which we currently have missing, the fullness of glorification. But when we think about our behavior, understand that holiness is this idea of an identity that can lead to personal moral excellence. But the term elsewhere, by the way, is used to describe times. It's used to describe altars, cattle. Uh, Sorry about this. It's used to describe prostitutes in the Old Testament, special prostitutes, not common one, both male and female. So get away from the idea that holy means sinless and rather replace that with it's a different way of living, a different outlook on life that, yes, will and should have an impact on how we live, but that's not all that the term means. So so I'm a prof, right? I'll give you a chart that you can't read so I can tell it what it says, all right? This is also on, our, on the Grace webpage under resources if you want. When you come into this idea of salvation, you're going to hear terms out there that at times, again, words that no one else says other than in church can be very confusing. It, it's really quite simple when you break them down. There's three phases or three stages of what we call salvation. Now, down here in Texas, we've got some pretty good lines. I'm a native Texan. I'm a native Houstonian, go Astros, and I enjoy some of the things that we get to say in our state. Um, I have some friends, for example, that live in the Permian Basin, West Texas. They're petrochemical engineers. You might say they're in the oil business. They would say they're in the all business, okay? Others in Texas, instead of recognizing that they've been justified, they've been declared righteous, we have a good phrase in this state in which we say, I got saved, okay? I got saved, okay? Now, if you get saved in the all business, you're a full Texan. You're all hat and no cattle and all those words that we say that no one knows what they mean. But this idea of justification is really a beautiful thing. It's just kind of shrouded in this word that no one says. It just means to be right. No different than if you're a fifth grade math student and you have a question on a math question, a math test and you get the answer right. You're justified. You've been declared right. If you're in a courtroom, and you've been acquitted of the crime. You're not guilty. If you're not guilty, you're right in your behavior. So the idea of justification is this idea of getting saved, coming to know Christ, of believing that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Most of us in this room this morning have enjoyed that past act of faith in Christ, which has been reckoned to our account. We've been considered righteous. But maybe you're here this morning and that's something that's still anew to you. Maybe that's something that you've not yet done. What a beautiful opportunity as we study the book of Ephesians is to take a look at the offer that God brings us through Jesus Christ. That we're separated from him because of sin. 
that he provided the avenue, the bridge back to God, that by faith, in, in the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, we might be reconciled with him and begin this life anew. Let this be your day of salvation, if that is your situation. And, and, and simply recognize that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. It's sort of like the birth of a child. In fact, Jesus would refer to it as being born again. We have a pretty new grandchild in the house. She's staying with us this weekend or as, as her parents are in Houston for a wedding. Selby is six months old. It took my wife and I, you know, every bit of the last 72 hours, all the time only dealing for this child. I had forgotten how hard child rearing was as everything about her, we were there. And, and the beauty of a child though, is there's an expectation of growth. Okay. So everybody's all happy when the child is born, you know, eight pounds, 19 ounces, everybody's all happy and everybody goes back and it was eight, 19 ounces wrong. <laughs> What should they be? Oh, eight, eight pounds, nine ounces. That'd be really little baby. We should do that. Eight pounds, 19 inches, what I meant to say. And everybody's there and all happy. And you go back to your homes and you let the parents settle in with the child and you go visit six months later. And the baby is eight pounds, 19 inches. I know no one that would say that's not a baby. I don't know anyone that wouldn't say, isn't the child supposed to be growing? As we enter the next phase of sanctification, if you've been justified, there is the expected growth spiritually that God has for us. But here's the trick. Here's the catch. It depends on our participation. It depends on our involvement with God as to how well this goes. In the first one, we're dealing with the penalty of sin. Now, how about the power of sin that might still be in our lives from having lived for self for so long, the old self. Now we've put on the new self, but I'm not used to obeying these commands that God has given me. I'm not used to living differently. That's the law or the the phase of sanctification, which the spirit of God, he sets us apart for the use intended by the designer. I love that phrase. God's intended use of you and me is that we be molded into the image of his son, that we be like Christ. He loves little Jesuses running around and he wants us to be like him. So we have to move from the things of the old man and participate and take on the things of the new and activate them in our lives. That's sanctification. As the old boys used to say, there's a day coming that one day, Imagine this, really just stop and think. You will not be in the presence of sin and you will not be able to sin. Imagine life without air and maybe you can get there. I I actually can't do it. Just sin shrouds our life. It's ruined everything. It's a daily constant reminder of the ruination that happened in the garden in Genesis 3. It is the longest living audio, audio visual illustration that I know of that when we stray away from the shepherd, look at what can happen. And God, I think, graciously allows us to keep seeing it, to keep being reminded by its sting so that we never want to go there again. And we look forward to that day, death or heaven, rapture, whatever comes next, in which even the ability and certainly the presence of sin is no more. That's why 
That's why John writes in Revelation, no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying. It's literally almost unimaginable. Yet Yet our hearts cry for it now, right? There's a day coming. We're living in the tension of it's not here yet. We're past the phase that we've come to know Christ, the one who died for sins. We're now that baby at some phase. How am I growing? Am I eating well? Am I cleansing myself? Am I moving on in my growth of spirituality? Am I being sanctified? God at his timing will bring about that final and future act where we'll have perfected immortality for eternity. Perfected immortality for eternity. You know, the Bible's an interesting document. The first two chapters, Genesis 1, no hint of sin, perfect shalom, perfection. The last two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22, no hint of sin, absolutely perfect shalom. (laughs) I can't remember how many chapters there are in, in between, but there are 66 books of sin, of stuff that's gone wrong. This great foe that we all have, that's the realm of the flesh. God is calling us in Ephesians 4 into the realm of the spirit. And he's primarily going to focus upon the use of obedience to commands. Now, over the years, folks have have come up with all different ways of looking at sanctification. Our identity in Christ is really Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Our practice or our behavior is Ephesians 4 through 6. Our positional sanctification, our experiential salvation, uh, sanctification. Our identity, notice the gamut, all believers positionally are equal. All believers are set apart under Christ by faith, the youngest as well as the oldest, the most carnal as well as the most spiritual. All enjoy a common identity at one level in Christ 27 times. Can't miss his point. But then how we behave as believers might vary. Why? Because it depends on my willingness to be involved in God's prompting, God's leading, God's spirit, guiding, disclosing, rebuking, correcting me. It depends on converting our position into experience. It's dynamic. It depends on our yieldedness and our participation with the Holy Spirit. Now, over the years... I think Christians have come to realize God expects me, this new baby, to grow. And so we've kind of come up with some ways to do that that may not be actually biblical, but it might help us to review them quickly. Uh, The first one is probably um, a little bit aspirational. Maybe we kind of hope it's this way. I call it the zap theory, where God just sort of zaps us with this robotic desire to obey. And obedience becomes automatic. It becomes robotic. I will obey. I was, I've been a dad for 30 years. When they were younger, I could make them do stuff if I just absolutely wanted to. Take the garbage out. Take the garbage out. Come here. Put the garbage in your hand. Walk it out. Okay? <laughs> Not fun. Not a bonding moment at any level. Okay. Although I had the power to do it, it wasn't mutually beneficial. I think what's going on a lot today in theology is perhaps an overemphasis on the concept of the doctrine of sovereignty and the doctrine of God's glory, okay? Those are two beautiful doctrines. They're just not the only two beautiful doctrines, okay? And if we overemphasize God's sovereignty especially, 
that God is boss of the applesauce. He can get whatever he wants. He's strong. He's sure he'll get his way. Well, then it just seems logical that he would also get his way in sanctification and he would force us to obey because he's strong enough to. We know he doesn't do that, but a lot of the teaching out there often kind of leads you to, well, is that if God is so sovereign over everything else, wouldn't he be sovereign over my Christian life? And I think the answer is no, and there's going to be a reason we're going to see. A lot of us know this one, especially if you've got a little gray in your hair, you probably heard, let go and let God. That's the old, um, old version of Jesus, take the wheel, by the way. This idea that, that, that God does all the work in sanctification. I want to preserve his glory. I want to preserve his sovereignty. So I'll just pull back. I'll just let go and let God handle this. My goal is to get out of his way. Could be done. I don't think that's what the Lord's doing, though. Now, some people go the other way. They say, I'm going to be totally active in this, and I'm going to, and yet I want to do well, so I'm going to come up with some rules that I can keep, and that becomes legalism. Things I can do or not do that makes me feel good about my walk with God and allows me to sort of compare myself to how others are doing. That's the idea of the legalist. The Judaizers in the New Testament got to be baptized, got to be circumcised. Got to do all these things. And Paul said, yeah, those are great. But one comes to know Christ only by faith in him. Those are additional things. And they wanted to make them equivalent to becoming justified. We show God and others our righteousness. Others have problems trying to reconcile. Okay, in the stage in which we live, we're not yet fully glorified. We're not unable to sin. We sin. We're, We're prone to wander as the song goes. And so you've got this idea of the body and the spirit. And what they do is, well, the spirit's good, man. That's cool. That's where it's at. That's that's what I really am. And so God sees me that way only. And they separate the two and allows them to live as they wish in their bodies with no repercussion. It's fine because God's just interested in the spirit. I think we know the truth is back here that the body and spirit are united as the Trinity is united, there's not a separation or you wouldn't have God. It's not a separation or you wouldn't have human beings if we separate our bodies and our spirits. And so what can happen if you buy into that view, spirit good, body doesn't matter, is licentiousness. Anything I want, unrestrained behavior because the body and spirit are separate. On the other hand, there are those that says, look, if I don't do anything, God is pleased with that. It's really a form of legalism. This is seen in uh, like uh, dualism was seen in 1 Corinthians, this is seen in Colossians a lot. This severe self-discipline, avoidance of all forms of indulgence. I don't do anything, and that's where I gain my spirituality. Again, I don't think it's what God has for us. I think he has this in mind. Participative sanctification, that we're involved, that we're a part of my and our sanctification with each other and before God. It is a divine human cooperation, just like justification was. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, I thank my God because of his choice of you and your faith in the truth. Notice different groups will try to overweigh those two. They're both equally true. His his choice of you and your faith in the truth. It's divine human cooperation. And guess what? It's pleasing to God. Like it would be pleasing to me for my kid to say, I should take the garbage out because it pleases my parents. 
I'll do it, not even being told. That's the home run there. If told, I'll give a good yes, sir, and go do it. That's pleasing to the parent. It's also instructive to the child. But there's a cooperation. Okay? So what we get in this little section is a bunch of commands. It's like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. It actually started briefly at the end of last week where Paul begins this idea of laying aside and then putting on. I just call it put off and put on. But he gives these six sets of negative commands. And he gives the benefits of negative and positive commands, sorry. And he gives the benefits of embracing that behavior. Okay? Gosh, if only I had a chart. Okay. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, Lord. It it is really helpful to see it this way, by the way. This is really a simple passage, which is probably the reason Brian gave it to me. He figured I could handle it. There, it starts with a negative command. He says, let's don't do the negative stuff. Let's replace it with doing the positive stuff. And if so, if you do that, by the way, there's benefit. The trick to this passage, and uh, by the way, the, the, the things that were um, causing problems in the Ephesian church are really not much different than what would char- cause problems anywhere. There were people living the old way. They were lying. They, they, were being, they were sinning in their anger. By the way, the Bible doesn't say don't be angry. It says, don't be sinful in your anger. Righteous anger is a godly trait, by the way. They were stealing. They were speaking unwholesome words. They were being bitter. They were grieving the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? One of the few times the Bible shows the personality of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, he didn't like being lied to. Here in Ephesians 4, it's grievous, like it would be to a parent, for your children to behave this way. So instead, let's do the opposite. Put on new self, speak truth, be angry, righteously, labor, do, speak good words, be kind, tender, forgive each other. And then the benefits is interesting. The new self is a, is a self of righteousness and holiness. When we speak truth, we preserve the membership of one another. When we're angry correctly, we don't give the devil a, a foothold. When we labor, instead of stealing, we can share with others. When we give good words, we can give grace to others and we need grace. When we're kind and tender and forgive us of each other, it it shows theologically that we understand what's happened to us, that we've been forgiven also, and I can pass it on. The trick to this chart is to not start here, but to start here. I think when you have a Christianity that's just not doing bad stuff, you find yourself in the middle of Romans 7, and you say, the very thing I set out not to do, I end up doing, okay? I think if you have a Christianity, an ethic, a charge in obedience that pursues righteous things. You will, by definition, not do the negative thing, by the way, but it resets your mind toward doing something that is good and holy and in keeping with the things of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? To focus only on the negative at times can just be so burdensome. And watch it, it can turn into legalism. You can be that Christian that just doesn't do this. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't read that author. I don't listen to that. CD. I don't go to that movie. And that might be the correct thing to do. It's just not the only correct thing to do. Rather, pursue righteousness and holiness in your choice of books. Make that the positive thing. Pursue righteousness and holiness in your choice of music, in your choice of movies, in your choice of friends. Pursue a positive thing, and the negative actually gets taken care of along the way. Paul does all sorts of imagery that's helpful to us, this put off, put on thing. It's simply getting dressed. A common human experience 
We all did it today. We walk into some place where our clothes were. College kids over in the corner only used three or four times this week. I understand that. Others with closets may be hung up somewhat. Most of the time they're in the dirty clothes hamper or in the dryer, all wrinkly. doesn't matter. He says, look, you get to know how to get dressed. Think about it. Think about your wear for that day. I thought about, well, we wear this coat or another coat. I'm going to wear this new shirt or another shirt. What about putting some dirty clothes off, anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, and lay aside that old self and now put on the new self? What's the new self? Put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Instead of the blue shirt, put on compassion. Instead of the brown shoes, put on humility. Make a conscious decision to get dressed for God and each other that day. Very similar to the way we get dressed today. We get dressed for each other and ourselves. In prepping, I I heard some stat that we spend a, a week a year getting dressed. A week a year getting dressed. Now, my wife and I had three daughters. They're all grown now. But over the course of my life, I was on the side of, of little less than one week a year getting prepped to get dressed. And they, they brought the average up by coming over here a little bit more. But nonetheless, a week, okay, I, that's not nothing. It's not all the time in the world. But with intentionality, it can be powerful. I had a kid come up after the first service. His name was Caleb. He goes, I literally started doing that two years ago. Put up signs in my closet. Trained my mind to expend at least the same effort and energy. Okay, what's, what's today? Okay, got that, the meeting at noon. I got to look like this then. I got to go to that party afterwards. I won't have time to change. I'm going to take these clothes for preparation for this day. And he simply did the same thing with these attitudes, with these behaviors, these commands that you're seeing. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul's just in love with this. Romans 13, do this. Already the hour is for you to awaken from sleep. He says that to Christians, by the way. For now salvation is nearer than we be, when we believed. Remember that idea that salvation is progressing? And now he says, therefore, let us lay aside the deed of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Depends whatever me- metaphor you like, they all work. My favorite is actually this one. Just put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And his robe of righteousness, if you will. Every morning as you go out, put on Jesus Christ and behave as he would. That's pleasing to God. Make no provision for the flesh. He loved not only the put off, put on metaphor, but one last one. He loves the idea of not just don't do this, flee from this, but pursue that. That's actually my favorite one. I resonate best with the flee pursue model. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and by some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. There's the warning again. And have pierced themselves with much grief. So he says, flee from that love of money, you man of God, and replace it with a pursuit of righteousness. Particularly people that might come from a legalistic background. You might have been taught, don't do this. Flee from that. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. I'm, I'm not dismissing that. I'm saying counterbalance it with not only flee immorality, but replace it now with something to pursue, something that can positively orient you to something that's a mission statement that makes sense. Just let's just don't be let's don't be fleers. Let's just don't be I don't doers. Let's be people who put on good behavior, who 
Seek after the pursuit of good things. First Timothy or Second Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Pursue righteousness. Look at the balance. It's quite beautiful. And it can really help you if you think through your obedience to the Christian life, which is part of the sanctification process. Let me end you with three ideas. We're going to put our sanctification cap on. C-A-P. I think the essence of, of, of the Christian life, of the spiritual life, sanctification, of being made set apart unto God or being made holy, requires three ways of thinking. All like a stew. All these ingredients are in there at the same time. First, and, and by far the most important, is the idea of community or relationship. God, in his essence, is communal. That's the importance, theologically, of the Trinity. God was well-pleased with himself and enjoyed community and relationship prior to the creation of men, women, lions, and tigers, and bears. Okay, We know that God is a communal being, and therefore, when he imparts part of himself to us, we're made in his image, right? That we, too or to enjoy community with him and each other. If only God had come up with a couple of verses to that end, love God and love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Be in community with them. Be involved with God in the things that he cares about. I think the most important one is adjustment. I think the flesh wants to do whatever it wants to do and is always done, and don't you be telling me how to change. And what to change. And I think it's the essence of life with God. He just laid out six commands for us. Stop doing this. Do that. The five-star general just walked in the room and told us what to do. Our response should be nothing other than yes, sir. Okay? That's the nature of sovereignty in the correct sense. That we submit to it. We fit under. The beauty of it is he wants us to do it because it's good for us. And it's pleasing to him. This room has been adjusted for this morning. When we got here this morning, this mic was over there. This table was in the college auditorium. We had to go find it. Couldn't find the, uh, the, the stand for that bass guitar. We adjusted to the reality. It required active engagement. The Christian life requires active engagement, all based on this idea of participating with God. I thank my God for your participation in the gospel, he says in Philippians 1. Record koinonia there. We translate it fellowship, yet we kind of download, you know, coffee, some kind of pastry is usually involved in fellowship, right? It's larger than that. It's really a partnership like a business, like a marriage. These same Greek word was used to describe those kind of things. It's participating with God in the things that he wants to do. And I think all three of these things can come in together with the imagery of dancing. We're at the 10th grade formal. One person out in the middle of the room got the little strobe light kind of going. We're all sitting on chairs at the circumference, the perimeter of the room. When's this thing over? I don't know. Are you going to dance? No. And there's, there's God in the middle. Come dance with me. Come on. You're my child. Dance with me. If you need to, you can stand on my shoes just like you did with your daughters, Jeff. I did with mine. Taught them how to dance. Just stand on my shoes. A beautiful dance couple. This is my wife and I, Ashley. No, not at all. No, sorry. It's beautiful. How many of you watch Dancing with the Stars? Okay. 
All right. Four of you raise the hands. The rest of you are liars. I got it. Okay. I'm kidding. Any kind of beautiful dancing, they've practiced. There's community. Let's do this together. There's adjustment. A little tap here, a little move there. And there's participation. I want to do this with you so that the benefit of not only participating is personally enjoyable, but for those that watch. We're putting on a play for God in our lives. Church is that play. Let's imagine one million church services going on right now at this very time, and God is watching them all simultaneously. It's like watching a movie that we love, and you watch it again and again. God loves to see people worship him collectively, communally, as they adjust to one another and himself and participate with him. And that's what he loves in the Christian life, that we are communal, that we dance with him, that we're participative, and that we can be commended by him as we now we've come full circle. As Paul had to tell the Ephesian elders, he tells us now, there's a reality that we have to be on the alert, but be commended. Let this be our benediction this morning. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning to spend some time with you and each other. Give us pause outside this place to contemplate these things, to search the scriptures, to see if they're true, and to take inventory. How am I doing in my life of community with you and others, of adjustment to you and others, and participating with you and others? Encourage us where we're doing well. Show us the correct way where we're not. Give us mercy and truth, we ask you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you all next week.